Culture. What is it? How do you create a good one? How do you measure it? And what do you do if you have a bad company culture? In this episode of Discipline, brought to you by Edison Partners, we chat with Barbara Hyman, CEO of Predictive Hire, who has decades of understanding of what culture is and how to best create it. Because of her background and deep knowledge, she is perfectly placed to scale this AI business into a global powerhouse. Barb and I get into the nitty gritty of what defines culture, how you hire for culture, and we explore how she came into the role of CEO at Predictive Hire and had to reset this tech startup and essentially build a team, product, and culture from scratch. This is not for the faint of heart. We delve into this incredibly difficult job of being an outsider and coming in and undertaking a startup turnaround. There is so much depth to this discussion and the advice is really invaluable. In Barb's own words, you have to be crazy to do it. Enjoy our discussion. Barbara Hyman, CEO of Predictive Hire, welcome to Discipline. You started your career, as many of my guests have, as a lawyer, and I guess it was Freehill, Hollingdale and Page back in the day. Um, why did you want to be a lawyer? Um, well, I, I, I couldn't really answer that question when I was 18, 19. I've got to say that it was a friend of mine who was a year ahead who did law that made me think that sounded like a good thing to do at university. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't come from a family that had been to university. Really, we were the first generation that had that opportunity. So um, I loved studying it, but the practice of it was very different to what I had envisioned. So I didn't stay in it too long. But it's certainly been a really useful grounding for me across my career. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually. What what skills do you think um, being a lawyer in one of these big uh, battery hen houses uh, gave you for, for later in life and business career? Yeah, look, I think, you know, um, it, it is still very much a relationship business. Obviously, you need to be credentialed as a lawyer and to be expert, particularly as you, you know, you become more senior, but ultimately it's, relationship building and people trust you with their problems so you know that for me has been part of what has been important in every role that I've had since um, because you know it's achieving things with others through others not necessarily solo Um, I think the other is listening and problem solving you know what you're doing in law is you're understanding the brief um, and figuring out what are the different ways that you can tackle that in a way that gives you know, value to your customer. And again, that's very much what I've been doing across my career since and certainly is what attracted me to move into consulting after law. And I think the other one is writing skills. Yeah. Um, You know, there is no doubt today, particularly in a COVID world where a lot of what happens with your team is communicated in writing. And so you need to think clearly to write clearly. I think law is a really good grounding for that. Yes. Yeah, it certainly is. Um you know, you you sort of uh, came into it because one of your friends was was doing it. Do you think now, with your friends or your own family, would you recommend law um, as a stepping stone to business, or do you think there's a better better route? Well, it's funny. My daughter, my nineteen year old daughter, is at university first year, and her plan is to do you know the arts degree at Melbourne Uni and then move into the JD. And look, I think it you know it's a fantastic grounding in thinking thinking in a really structured way, in a logical way, being reasonably fact-based if you think about case law as being fact. And I think in the world of, you know, increasing ambiguity um, given the change, the ability to distill complex issues down in a structured, thoughtful way backed by data 
is a really valuable skill. So to me, it's more about the skills um, that you're going to learn as well as the soft side of it, you know, the ability to work with others, to listen well, to have empathy for other people's problems. So I, I think it's a fantastic place to start. So then looking at career, you go from, uh, as you touched on, the, the legal fraternity to the consulting group, uh, take a job, Boston Consulting Group. Uh, it's not an unusual path for a lawyer, but what did you then learn at BCG? Uh, look, BCG um, gave me so much, um, you know, a lot of my network comes from my time there and, you know, I, I went back and forth quite a bit. Um, you know, I was there for 10 years elapsed time across a number of different roles and I think what kept bringing me back was the importance of culture and how people really define that culture um, and so, you know, a respectful and um, uh, an understanding of how the right people around you who are really working as one and incredibly curious and motivated and humble um, is a recipe for doing quite amazing things. And was that, I'm curious, was that something that, you know, you you talk about culture, my sort of timing on things, I'm trying to cast my mind back a a few years when I was around the same time in uh, the work environment. Culture didn't seem to me to be a, a big sort of, big ticket item uh, until more recently. Is that is that right or, or is culture something that well, was so, very important? Yeah, the whole, the fundamental sort of philosophy of BCG, which was defined by Colin Carter, who was one of the founding members of the predecessor to BCG in Australia, was high for values, train for skills. Right. And that was in like 1995 or something. Okay, and, yeah. Um, you know, and he would have invented that and maybe he didn't invent that particular line, but he would have you know, inculcated that mindset when he first built BCG with his fellow partners. And, you know, that that's what you think about now, right, in terms of what culture is. It is about a set of values that define the, the, the you know, the way in which you want people to behave um, and the way in which your leaders need to behave, you know, a culture of accountability, a culture of humility, a culture of, um, you know, working as one. Um, and that that philosophy was there because at BCG you hire from any degree. It's agnostic what your background is, but at the end of the day you're bringing in people who all have a common set of values and then you develop them. And you obviously have to develop pretty fast yourself on the job. So, you know, it wasn't called culture, but it was certainly visibly expressed that idea of hire for values, trained for skills. And funnily enough, that is exactly what our technology does now. So, you know, 20, 30 years later, um, it's it's interesting how it's come around to be really definitive for me in my in my job now. You go then from BCG, you take a little stint in Orica um, and it says you've done a bit of a business development role. Did you have a, a, a natural sort of penchant for business development and, and, and sales? Was it a hunter? Yeah, so that was a kind of crazy time. Um, so I guess for me what led me from law and I also did an internship at Macquarie and decided that wasn't for me when I was at business school and consulting was what I wanted because I really wanted to be the one that was shaping the strategy, not executing it, and it felt to me in law and even in investment banking a lot of what you're doing last. And, like, that's that's wasn't the interesting bit you know i was i was sort of curious to know well why is that an acquisition that's really going to make the difference for this business so um the opportunity for orica came about because um during the first dot com boom boy there was a lot of you know e- e- ideas incubated within big corporates who looked at what was going on with the internet you know this is back in the 2000s and said we want to be a part of that 
Yeah. And obviously what Orica had is this incredible set of brands with Sellies and Dulux, and they thought, well, what if we could create a platform which can qualify tradesmen um, so that people can feel trust in the in the people that are recommended, basically a recommended or a matching algorithm, um, before those things really right. sort of existed, which is what High Pages is now. Right? Yes, yes, um, just been successful. Just listed. That was back in two thousand, and right. um, so the journey we went on is there was a small team. The guy who ran it um, came from Dulux, and we were all a bunch of sort of not so much misfits, but just really eclectic experiences. And the idea was, can we build? a marketplace that helps people who are renovating, you know, it was really ahead of its time, right, to identify qualified tradesmen. And one aspect of it was obviously a predictive algorithm. Um, the other was around content. You know, at that time you didn't have the content that you've got now on the internet. And so, you know, doing deals with different magazines to get access to, you know, amazing visual content to keep people on site. And it was called Would You Believe MySpace? Um, which is a different MySpace. So, you know, it was an amazing experience of a, you know, really, you wouldn't even call it early stage startup. It was a CEO yeah. that reported to the Board of Orica. And, um, you know, even now I still stay in touch with some of the people that, um, that are there. Amazing. And then you go back to the world, though. You go back from Orica back into BCG. And this time I think it looks like you've really started to align your career path much more with the, the culture and HR for lack of a better term, um, sort of foundations within a, within a business. Is is that what happened? You really sort of found your interest there? I, I believe that nothing has been planned. Right. Other than doing law and doing an MBA to get out of law and find my way to business, there is nothing that's been thoughtful. Um, it's really been opportunistic. And I've got three kids and at that time we'd moved to Sydney for my then-husband's business and I still wanted to work and I loved BCG and they called me up and said, do you want to come and do this role? So that's how considered it was. Um, you know, I never saw myself as an HR person and even now I don't really see myself as a traditional HR person. And, yep. um, you know, it just it just accommodated what I needed at that time with, with young kids and yeah. you know, a husband with a fairly demanding role. So... I kind of, you know, fell into a lot of opportunities, including this one. And and you've obviously uh, excelled in those because then you've gone again you've, from BCG into REA Group um, and stayed around this people and, and culture and marketing. What are, what do you think are the three sort of key learnings, if you could distill it down to that, for um, you know senior positions in charge of people at organisations, very talented and ambitious people. What what are the three things you need to keep in mind, front of mind? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think for me, mentors have always been really important to test my thinking um, and sort of hold the mirror up because I'm pretty intense as a operator and I can immerse myself and kind of lose sight of the impact of maybe some of my behaviours. So having a mentor who can kind of just in a trusted, supported way and sometimes in a really, really direct way, call me out, um, ha has been important and continues to be. I think the other is, you know, what I got from BCG was just strategic thinking and, and you know, it is the most important skill, which is how do you tell a story that people can understand and be inspired by and then, you know, pass that along to your team to execute on? And, you know, one one piece of advice someone gave to me really early on is, you know, I'm quite a creative innovative thinker and I didn't always do a great job of of defining that story um, and you know the way this person suggested it to me is if you 
painting a picture of what you want, you know, and you say, I want a temple on the hill. You know, you have to kind of go beyond that. You have to say, I want it to look this way. I want it to have these kinds of ingredients. I want people to feel like this when they walk through it. Um, you know, it needs to be um, this size and scope. And uh, often when you're working with more junior people, they get freaked out by ideas. You know, I used to think it was really inspiring to be in a meeting with a junior team and sort of throw out all these wild ideas. And because I guess I really believed that they were all great ideas, but they can feel <laughs> overwhelmed by that. Like, yeah. what do I do when I leave this meeting? So yes. you know, you've got to kind of reserve those conversations to have with the right people. And it might not even be people in your team. And just simplify, you know, the story and make it achievable for the team and make it clear for the team. So I learned that through mistake, not through, you know, actually figuring that out ahead of time. Well, let's then get into predictive hire and your current CEO role. When you say you, you fell into it, um, how did that come about? And also, what's, what's the elevator pitch for predictive hire? So... Tony, imagine if I could say to you that we will interview all of your candidates for you. You don't have to do it. And we're going to call every one of them who has invested 20 minutes in that process with feedback that they're going to love, that's going to help them and make them feel smarter and more self-aware. And whether you've got 200 people that you want us to interview or 2 million, we can do that for you overnight. And even more than that, we're going to make sure that every time you do each and every interview, we're going to be tested for whether or not we're doing that fairly. You know, are we biased in any way in every single interview that we have with every single candidate who wants his job? What you would say is, I don't believe it. There's no one that can do that. That's yeah. human task. That's what our technology does. Great. So we save an enormous amount of time for people who are recruiting at scale, who really care about the candidate experience, who never want to miss out on any talent, and who really care about inclusivity because it's blind hiring. Um, so that's our, you know, that's our secret sauce. And we're the only ones globally at the moment that have a formula which uses chat yep. conversation, which for people is really relatable. Yes. The key part of AI is it's got to feel human. It's got to feel like to you as a candidate, it's something that isn't a robot. You know, that is something that you do every day. It's something that is what you would do in an interview. And we think that playing games and talking to a screen one way, answering questions with a 10-minute window is not normal and is not intuitive and is not comfortable for a lot of people. So that that's the kind of magic of what we've built is we've, we've housed very complicated science within a very human, you know, format. Cool. Yeah, right. Um, and how did, it, how did it come about and how did you end up, uh, how did you get uh, hired yourself from, uh, for yeah. this role? So again, another, you know, serendipity, um, Kirsten, who I stayed in contact with, that I worked with at MySpace, was called about the role by one of the board members and she said, no, no, that's not for me, but you should speak to Barb. Yeah. So I had a conversation and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'd had that experience in my two roles at both BCG and REA. I could see the time suck of recruitment and the horrible bias of all of these engineers going and having coffee chats to see whether or not they felt like them, you know, in the hiring, a lot of mirror hiring, a huge amount of buys. Yes. And at REA, we worked out with the um, then CTO, Nigel, that it was about 100 hours of engineering time to recruit one engineer. Wow. So when you look at the product velocity and when the CEO starts to say to you, we're not moving fast enough in product development because our engineers are spending so much time having coffee chats 
and hiring, you know you've got a problem that really matters to the business. Yeah. So, you know, the chance to bring together my background in, you know, data-driven decision-making, which is what consulting is all about, plus solve for what is a really big pain point for a lot of organisations was, you know, really exciting to me. So I spent this, the, you know, just period over Christmas building together my 100-day plan and sharing it with the board. And, I, you know, to me it was this incredible creative, you know, intellectual challenge. And whether I got the job or not, I just loved the work. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it turns out when I went back to it recently, almost three years later, there's a lot of what was in that that we've actually built out. So that yeah, great. Really, really cool. Look, I'm sure you'll ask me on this, but the big challenge with working in a startup and we really were starting from scratch is the, you know, the, the, the sort of big, hairy, audacious goal and the critical things you have to solve for change. You know, they really do. You're building the product first. Yes. You're at go to market. And so, you know, there's no resting. There's no kind of, um, okay, we've nailed it. You know, you've never nailed it. Yes. Um, you're always figuring out what the next, you know, how to, how to conquer the next challenge, the next horizon. And in, a, and in a constant feedback loop from yeah. customers. And I think one of the things that, you know, is worth trying to articulate here is that when you're in that period of a startup and you've got product, uh, when you've got no customers, you've got uh, unlimited capacity to innovate. Uh, as soon as you get a customer, your capacity diminishes because you're spending some of your time managing that customer uh, your resources, looking after that customer, delivering to them. Up to it's do. a little bit different in, in a technology which relies on machine learning. So there is no product until you have customers and you're starting to get data. So, you know, we're not like an Atlassian when you have a group of engineers and you build a product and then you go out and start getting people to use it. You don't have a product until you've got the flow of data. And so we were really experimenting live with our customers in the early days, which yes. is scary. Um, and you're hoping that their problem is big enough and their trust and that, you know, <laughs> strong enough that they'll keep going because, you know, there are, you're figuring it out, right? Like no one has done this before globally. No one has figured out that the words that you write, the language that you use in response to an interview can figure out whether or not you're suitable for a job. Yeah. Right? This kind of completely new innovation. Um, I guess it's innovation. That's a bit of a, a tautology. And so you, you're, you're trusting that the science will be there and, you know, you're trusting that your data science team will move at a ridiculous pace and be bold and put out things that we don't quite know whether they're going to work because otherwise you don't, you know, you don't get there. So that, you know, it's pretty scary in the first 12 months when you're, when you're experimenting, you know, live and you're really having to evolve. In our case, it was we had, you know, a handful of features in the beginning we could extract from data and now we have 80 or so features and that will keep growing. But we weren't at 80 in day day 30. You know, it took a good two years to get there. Yeah, so, I mean, talk to me then about uh, in that context of, you know, experimentation and putting trust and putting faith, you've come into this role, uh, you know, after having a presentation to the board and the investors, no doubt, and shareholders and they're putting a huge amount of faith in you to be able to deliver on uh, some form of successful experimentation then. Uh, what kind of pressure, what kind of, um, uh, you know, emotions does that create where you've got the pressure of having to build something internally, the external pressure, um, and then you've got to deliver something of value to customers? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. It sounds like a pretty hard gig. Yeah, yeah, it has been pretty tough. You know, I think so. I walked into an existing team and product and set of customers, which really had to be, um, uh, 
you know, turned over. You know, it was it was a reset in every way, and probably the biggest challenge has been in building the team um, because we didn't have an engineering team, and we certainly didn't have a data science team, and so that that you know, I guess you have to think really logically, which is you can't sell a product until you've got a product, and you can't build a product until you've got a team who know how to how to how to do it. So you know, it's 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 sort of intuitively sequential. And you have to believe in it, you know, and you have to have, in my case, it was Booty who came from Culture Ramp who really believed in the power of text and I trusted him to figure it out. And he has. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of people um, that are critical to, to where we've got to. Um, I think the other thing for me is that I felt there was a culture of a bit of, you know, you know, you, you're, you're respecting the customer, um, but you've also got to respect investors. And I think people can be a bit, um, uh, you know, dismissive, if you like, of, of those who are investing their funding in you. Oh, well, that person's a billionaire, so it doesn't really matter if they lose a million dollars, you know. And so one of the things I did quite early on is print off pictures of each of our investors and have them on the wall of our office and say every day we need to leave and feel like we've done something really worthwhile to honour the trust that they've put in us, you know, to build this product. Um, and then we obviously also had a wall of our customer logo. So it was really not just honouring the customer who trusts us to solve a really difficult problem, but also the investors. And I think, you know, that that's created a real culture of um, frugality. You know, so, you know, an example would be is we have an incredible engineering team and one of the products we use um, that we API into so we can do bias um, analysis is pretty expensive, um, the way in which they've structured their pricing. And I, you know, made a comment like, guys, you know, this is just not, there's not an ROI here for us. You know, um, can we find a different way? And he went on the weekend and built a replica product, a deep learning model to predict your gender and your race from your name, which is an existing standalone business that someone else runs overseas that we had API'd into now. You know, that's incredible, right? Someone who can hear that, you know, from a from an ROI perspective, we need to find a different way, yeah. who acts like a founder. So, you know, that reverence, I guess, for people's trust in us, whether it be investors' capital or our customers, has created a real founder culture amongst every member of the team. So you mentioned culture. You mentioned a, a bit of a reset as well when you come into this. You, you So you come in, you're not the founder. You've got to uh, get into line with a, a previous vision perhaps or continue alignment with that vision but then you've got this people issue of as you say not moving fast enough not being able to deliver to you know stakeholders requirements um you know what kind of challenges does that pose where you might have to put a bit of a broom through some people or you know you've pushed out old management and come in again it sounds like a really uh tough challenge yeah and my advice would be don't do it if you've been offered an opportunity to take on a really exciting job where you're walking into someone else's team and culture, you know, I mean, I just think it's too hard. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my challenge was that, um, you know, within six weeks I had to raise money and so people were trusting me and backing me and at that point I was in. I couldn't walk away. But it was incredibly difficult um, to exit a team, to exit a founder, to manage customers who were using a product that wasn't giving them value because the product wasn't the right product. Um, you know, it was a turnaround at the yeah. same time as a startup. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. <laughs> a startup um, turnaround. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, don't do it. 
<laughs> um, or do a lot more due diligence about what you're walking into. <laughs> I think it took me about sort of nine months to figure out, okay, I need to figure this out, right? Really, it really is, you know, a clean sheet. We have to start again. And um, uh, and in every respect, including things like the cap table, you know, it was a two-year journey to fix the cap table to better reflect the reality of who was building value and who had equity. Yeah. Um, so there was that side of it as well. And so, you know, where we are right now, we've got product market fit, we've got the right cap table, we've got an amazing supportive group of investors and, you know, line in the sand, the past is the past. But it hung around for a long time. You know, even yeah. from a brand perspective, to be honest, people had a certain view of the brand and the product. And so you're having to re-educate them because we kept the name, which in hindsight I wonder whether that was the right thing to do. Um, and so they're like, well, that's really different to what I was shown, you know. So you, you, you're, you're, you know, it's 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 been a really big struggle. Um, and and how do you, um, I suppose, carry on then? You know, you talk about nine months of real heavy lifting and, and heavy graft. You know, you like in, everyone has moments of doubt, uh, especially in startups. You know, have we gone the right direction? Um, you've obviously got investors who are patient to some extent but have already been through the first uh, wave or iteration of the business uh how do you how do you know yourself that you're on the right path look i you know it, it's um i think you have to be a bit crazy to keep to keep doing it i think for me i just you know one of my traits which can be a strength as well as a weakness is just you know ridiculous accountability um, and I, I felt like, okay, I'd raise money and people believed in me. And I really believed in the, the problem. Like it was so clear to me that there was a huge problem to solve and no one was doing it. Yeah. And I felt that I had something unique to bring to that, which is the human side of AI. You know, what the team had built up until then was something that was very science, but was a really crap experience to a human being. And so I felt that's what I can really drive forward with and then I, what I need is a technical team who can then actually make it happen. So it it, it, it was the really the blend of Booty and myself that kind of gave me hope that I, I completely trusted him and I still do. We're very different. He's a scientist. He's more risk averse. He, you know, thinks differently but I, I'm, you know, in awe of what he's been able to do in the time frame um, yeah. here in the team. So, you know, it, 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 you know, we're really in it together. Yeah. And I think when you've got, we had a client in Qantas in the early days that had a big problem. Um, they had a team of four. They were hiring 4,000 a year. They were using a video AI tool that candidates hated and they thought there has to be a better way, help us out. And they backed us, you know, and that yeah. team have just built, we've built the product alongside them. Unfortunately, they're not actively recruiting now, but, you know, you need one or two clients that go, I, I just, you know, yeah. I trust that you guys are really going to keep developing and i think if you ask all of our customers one thing they'll say about us is this pace of innovation has been off the richter yeah um so you know that's how you build trust right people say this isn't working or how does this work or, or why is that person a yes and that person's a no and so booty and i just felt like you know one we have to solve this and two we have people who are relying on us so we have to solve it so that's that's kind of what keeps you going every day. But to be honest, you're you know you're so immersed, you don't you don't think about it. You just have to keep going. Yep. Yeah. Culture and business. So it's obviously very important, and it's really bubbled to the the surface. You know, culture to me can be a real intangible. It's sort of like this 
unifying force that, that binds people, but it can change really quickly. Yeah. Uh, how do you measure culture? How do you quantify it? Um, that's a really interesting question and one that we talked about at REA a lot because I was hired in to help support a big culture change. Um, you know, I, I think it's certainly not through a survey. Um, you know, I think that engagement being really high is a bit of a vanity metric and can be a bit misleading. Um, one thing that was clear at REA was that the engagement was incredibly high amongst the engineering team when I started, but productivity was not not great. So from a business perspective, they wouldn't have said the culture was great, but from a team perspective, they loved it. You know, everyone was working on the next shiny new thing and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and could really shape their own working working kind of strategy. Um so, you know, I, I think the right culture is a business that's successful at the end of the day. Culture and your people have to serve the business objectives. And uh, and that's over the medium to long term, you know. So um, at the end of the day, it comes from the people that you're hiring and the people that you promote. And that's what attracted Booty, who had been a culture amp, yeah. to work for us, which is he did the analysis year on year of who's in the top quartile, bottom quartile of most engaged um, organisations. On the, on the hypothesis that engagement equals performance, which I think is a bit of a, a false positive, just like I think ARR is a bit of a false positive, um, that, that can be a separate conversation. <laughs> he, what he realised was that it didn't change. The same companies were always in the top and the bottom, and so he felt like it has to be about the people. You know, if you can find a formula to hire differently, then you can change your culture. And, you know, what we've done is create a formula that can also be used to screen for values, screen for culture. Because when you think about culture, what is it? It's a set of behaviours, right? It's that you want people who are resilient. You want people who are accountable. You want people who give a shit about, you know, each other and what's yep. going on in the business that will yep. turn up with the right intent. All of that is values and behaviours. And yeah. you know that when you're interviewing. You're looking for people who are a culture fit. You're looking for a set of behaviours. Yeah. So that is easily prescribed. And in the case of our tech, we can now find it in you. Yes. We respond to a set of questions. So, you know, it's not our core focus, but there are a few very, you know, mature tech companies that I'm talking to overseas about. Imagine if you could screen every applicant like Amazon does with their leadership principles for your cultural values, putting yeah. aside how brilliant they are as an engineer, what really matters is their behaviours because that's ultimately what's going to, you know, endure you as an organisation. So that that's a kind of a new application of our tech that we're working with a few more sophisticated tech companies with. I'm going to come back to that, but I'm going to take this in a, in a different direction because a lot of companies say they, they want a great culture or they have a great culture. So what happens when... The company that's saying we want to build a great culture is actually only paying lip service to culture. And then you hire someone who's got all these values that uh, the company wants to be, but, you know, they're only espousing them and you get this clash. I mean, there, is there still a lot of companies just paying lip service to this? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's the same as, you know, diversity. I think diversity is something that people talk about Um you know, with, with, with some conviction, but uh, what are they doing about it? So I, I think it's very easy to talk culture and to rely on engagement surveys to demonstrate that you have a good culture. But, you know, when you really measure the success of the business, you know, how competitive is it relative to its peers? Um, how what's their, what's their sort of retention of key talent like? You know, those are some of the metrics that you look to for culture. Um, what's the level of innovation that's coming from, you know, bottom up? 
right? Are people kind of coming up with ideas and are they rising to the top? That's a sign of a great culture. Yeah. Um, not whether or not people say that, you know, Rem and Ben is great or, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I rate 85% on the engagement survey. So I think you have to really look at what is important for this business um, to be continuously successful. That has to then be the top-down formula for how you figure out, well, what does it take in order to get to that? Usually it means you're holding on to great talent. Usually it means you can win great talent, so your cross-off or win rates are great. Um, it means that there's a constant stream of innovation. Um, uh, it means that, um, uh, you know, decisions can get made really quickly. There's not a whole lot of hierarchy. You know, those are the signs or the in, they're almost like the lead indicators of yeah. a culture which are going to produce the lag outcome of a successful business. Which makes it even more staggering that huge companies like Amazon can have, uh, you know, such an amazing culture when they, when a lot of other big companies of that scale are bogged down in hierarchies and silos. Well, so and interesting because I, I think, you know, with Amazon, so, you know, I think people would say about Jeff Bezos, you know, what a genius, right? Like, look at what he's done. He's been able to distill a set of core capabilities um, and create multiple different businesses. He's almost like redefined strategy because strategy is usually focus and they're in a lot of different businesses. And so I think people kind of have this reverence for him, but do they love him? You know, because what he doesn't have is empathy. Um, you don't see that a lot. And there are constant challenges around the kind of culture that's created, you know, their treatment of people in some of those uh, warehouse, you know, roles, et cetera, blue collar roles. Um, but, you know, that's a certain kind of culture and people will be attracted to that, just like Netflix is a certain kind of culture. Yeah. But, you know, there's not one formula for culture. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a skill set that's going to be more and more required for every business. Um, difficult when, as you say yourself, it's like, you know, it's hard to quantify. Um, but also my next question would be, do you think these traits that, you know, help people, uh, bring good culture to the table are traits that are inherent, uh, people are born with, or can cultural, positive cultural traits be taught and learned? So if culture is driven by people and people are defined or shaped by, you know, their values, their innate traits, um, they are innate. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a fantastic book. Um, I can't find it right now where I am, written by an Australian academic around personality. And, you know, personality is something that is fixed that you're born with. You know, if you have children and you look around them and you go there, you know, who they are at 20 is who they are at two. There's something really consistent around that. Now, that's not to say that you can't, through self-awareness and investment in yourself, you know, either sharpen or, or, or sort of dilute, you know, aspects of that. There are plenty of people who are introverts who found a way to be extroverted when they need to be, for instance. But at its core, um, what that book and the academic research shows is that your personality is really set um, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, that is really what our, what our technology is discovering, is that there are people who are naturally empathetic um, and um, there are people who are, you know, um, you know, naturally open and curious. You know, I have three kids and I can see that one of my kids is a real risk taker and the other isn't. Yeah. Um, and that has not changed over 20 years. <laughs> and I can see it reflected in a lot of different ways in which they live now. Um, so, you know, that is that is what we're looking to find. And it's not to say that you can't, you know, evolve as people because we're all, you know, um, work in progress and there's a lot of 
um, uh, I, I think the starting point is self-awareness around where do you naturally feel yourself? Where do you naturally feel really great? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, certainly there are aspects to what I need to do in my role now that are not my natural strengths um, that I have to, you know, really be self-aware about and be conscious about. But the core is the core that you're born with. Yeah, interesting. So I'm going to get into AI then a little bit. Predictive hire is obviously predicated on technology that's using artificial intelligence to really drive the value for customers. And I think we talked a little bit earlier before hitting record about, you know, uh, in a COVID world, how AI has got this transformational capabilities uh, for business and a lot of business that might not have looked at it previously are, are looking to, to it now to see what it can actually achieve. For you, how do you sort of articulate AI and how it can transform business? Uh, look, it's really just data, you know, at the at the, its core. It's really just using data to help, you know, make faster decisions, better decisions, in our case, less biased decisions. But, you know, truth is AI can be problematic. Um, and in some parts of our world, we know it is really problematic. And I think one of the things that we and us as a team want to do more of and see ourselves as being really leaning in on this is what does responsible use of AI look like in the context of HR? And um, how do we help educate the market about that? Because there's there's sort of ideology, you know, there are people who just do not fundamentally believe and trust the application of AI when it comes to, you know, hiring decisions. Um, and so how do we kind of unpack that? Then there are those where um, they have they, they, they sort of recite facts that are just not correct around AI. And then obviously there's a lot of natural fear and, and there should be. And I think that plays into both the candidate side as well as the, you know, the organisation side. Yeah. So for us, what we feel is at the core is trust, that in order to build trust, we need to deliver on a number of different things and we need to measure ourselves on that and we need to be transparent about how we're going on that, a bit of an AI report card. Um, and, you know, that includes things like um, uh, explainability. It yep. includes things like that it can't be biased. So, you know, one of the critical things that we encourage the market to do is ask the organisation, you know, what is the testing that you do around bias? Can I see that testing? Um, how wide um, is it? You know, is it covering just gender? Does it include race? Does it include people with disabilities? You know, you want to feel as a decision maker in an organisation, particularly if you're one of our clients where, you know, you're Bunnings and you get the whole population applying for jobs, you know, they could be any of that. How do you make sure that you can trust that everyone is given a fair go? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a number of different lenses like that, but it's not just in the algorithm. It's actually across the entire end-to-end experience. Yeah. So even the design of it, like the formula that we use of chat, how does that live up to our, you know, um, objectives around being unbiased, being inclusive, being explainable? Um, it can't just be what sits underneath the hood. It has to be the whole end-to-end -end experience. And so for us, that's why when you think about a game, um, is that something that's inclusive? Does everyone feel comfortable playing a game to get a job? Does everyone feel like they can explain, you know, as a recruiter why Tony got the job and I didn't get the job or why you got a certain score? And so we think that the responsibility around, you know, um, building trust and all of those dimensions cut across the entire into an experience, not just, you know, what sits under the hood. Uh, it's, it's actually fascinating. 
B2B then, you're doing B2B sales. Um, you know, you've mentioned a couple of the large uh, blue chip organisations around Australia that you have as clients and there's many more that Predictive Hire have. You've done some BDM work with Orica and marketing work in the past. Uh, how do you sort of coalesce or coagulate all that knowledge to build an effective B2B pipeline? Uh, well, we're figuring that out now. Okay. <laughs> Everyone is. Yeah. yeah, so the whole go-to-market formula is something we're trying to figure out. Look, I think up until now it's really been mostly me and, um, you know, someone in my team going out and selling, if you like, and I think the most important thing is you're not selling. You're having a peer-to-peer conversation. You know, I haven't got a background in sales, really. You know, no one would hire me in sales, but that's my core job. I mean, they're selling the, the dream to the investors or I'm selling to clients. But, you know, it starts with, you know, Tony, so I can see that your business has got a lot of people that are applying for jobs and you're a consumer brand. You must care a lot about the ones that get rejected. Tell me, how are you, how are you facing into that? Um, what do you think some of those challenges are? And you start with that. It's the same as consulting. It's the same as law. You're understanding someone's world. You're leaning into their world in a way that feels like you're trusting, you know, they're trusting you as a bit of a partner in that. Yep. Um, and then you go from there. And if it turns out that, you know, that person doesn't feel that now's the right time or that, um, you know, actually they want a different solution, like that's fine. But you've got to start with them and understand the customer and have empathy for them. And then at the end of the day, you know, the, the natural outcome will be, well, this technology seems to really fit. And I think for us, one of the things that we've, figured out is there's a real buyer persona you know there's a buyer persona of someone who is a leader with a capital l yeah we are selling change right this is a really big change in an organization to say we're going to use ai to do your interviews we're going to use ai to give everyone feedback you know your recruiters are not going to be reading cvs they're not going to be doing phone screens you probably don't need as many of them your hiring managers are going to get the profile and the list so you're really just intermediating in some cases, a big team, that is very threatening to a lot of, you know, recruitment leaders. Yeah. So it's kind of reimagining your role. You know, there's still a role for the recruiter. It's just do you really want to be, you know, is your time well served screening CVs and doing phone screens and watching videos? Like what amazes me now is how many organisations are substituting CV screening with video screening. Aside from the fact that it's obviously a recipe for bias, um, I couldn't think of anything worse, particularly yeah. in a world where we're now all living on Zoom. So, you know, it's kind of, okay, if you weren't doing that, what could you do? How does that unleash space and time to invest in sourcing, for instance, you know, to think about, okay, you know, in one part of the market, we're not got to getting the talent we want. What does a different sourcing strategy look like? But also with the business, helping them with onboarding or understanding the brief in terms of what kind of role they're looking to hire for. So, you know, let machines do what they do much better and more efficiently and let the humans do what only humans can do well. So that's the kind of, you know, we're more of a co-pilot for the recruiter. You know, we're not we're not seeing ourselves as the autopilot that takes everyone out. So when you've, you've, you've said you get these personas, um, so you have a lot of discussions and how do you then take that feedback through the customer to go, oh, well, this is what we're looking for or this is, what our product looks for look, needs to look like. It's easy to sort of take the last meeting as the as the truth, and uh, certainly founders, first time founders, can change their whole business based on one customer conversation. In my experience, how do you make sure you don't do that? Um, well, you make sure that you have a product that works, and then you keep selling that product. 
you know. So um, really we're very clear on what our target markets are and we're also much more savvy now about the buyer persona that we need in those target markets and we're, we're happy to lose quickly um, and we're happy to say, you know, thanks, but it just you're not going to get the right value out of this because reality is for us whether you're selling to someone who's a $50,000 client or a $200,000 client, the level of effort required from customer success to implement is the same. Yeah. So, um, and for a business on their side, you know, you're putting your brand out there as an HRD to roll out to new technology. So you want the problem to be big enough that it's worth it and that the business sees it as a shared problem. And so if you're hiring 100 a year, you know, it's really probably not worth going through a, re, a sort of a whole reimagining of your recruitment process. If you're hiring a thousand or ten thousand, absolutely, the payback is going to be you know ten times within the first year. So the problem needs to be a shared problem by business and HR, and it needs to be big enough that the change management effort on their side and our side is worth it. You know, we're enterprise, and a big part of what we do is guide the organisation on communications around what is this new approach? Yeah. How do we get people to trust it? How do we bring people on the journey? And so we have an amazing customer success team who have built an approach to that, but also, you know, just um, project leadership and change management expertise, which often our clients don't necessarily have. So, you know, where it's not consulting services as much, it's just that onboarding is an absolutely critical input for adoption and use um, and trust. And so, you know, that that's really, that's pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, once we hand it over to customer success. So, you know, think about it. If you're a Bunnings or a Woolworths, you've got thousands of people who need to understand this. And obviously you have to do it in a way that's scalable, right? So our technology allows you to do that, but you have to help guide them on that change management side. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to hear. It's a, it's a great insight that, uh, you know, sales is not just building a product and, and dumping it on someone's doorstep and saying, yeah. good luck with it. Uh, you know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. There's a lot, you know, especially in enterprise sales, a lot more hand-holding and uh, taking people down the path to the promised land, not just saying, if you take this box, you will get there. Yeah, um, that's right. I, I think that's a great insight. Expensify, you know, we're selling something <laughs> far more comprehensive in terms of, you know, how it's going to impact your business. Well, listen, you've given some amazing insights, Bob. Uh, we're going to go from the uh, prosaic world of business to the, the jocular quickfire round to finish off. Favourite photographer? Oh, Bill Henson. Artist. Guy Maestri. Comedian. Larry David. Worst law firm experience? Uh, rather not say. Best advice you've ever received? Um, just do it. Don't overthink it. Worst advice you've ever received? Just do it. Don't overthink it. <laughs> <laughs> what skills would you advise someone uh, stepping up in the management of food chain? Uh, what skills would you advise them to invest in? Look, sales. I say to every 20-year-old, go and get a job selling. If you could go anywhere for lunch now, where would you go? Definitely the European in the city. What's the next 12 months got in store for Bob Harmon? Oh, crazy, crazy uh, growth and more learning and continuing to sit in a seat that's way bigger than me and hoping I can fill it out over time. I'm sure you can. Well, I know you're very busy. You've got a lot on your plate. Thank you very much for uh, sharing all these insights with our listeners. Enjoy the rest of 2020. Good luck for next year and beyond. And thank you for being on Discipline. Thanks so much, Tony.